Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording live under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Rob Orgel. Now, Rob is an entrepreneur here in the Valley. He runs and owns ERC Tactical and is a firearms instructor, which I know he's probably not keen on that term. So he's going to share a little bit of his background and history and, and really give us the goods on where he's coming from and what he's doing. So Rob, welcome on. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, yeah, you said it, the firearms instructor. Man, we're a dime a dozen. There's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of them. And um, you know, it's good. We, we should be ushering in the next generation of shooters and, and 2A friendly type people. Um, you know, a lot of time it's, it's, we are a product of our parents and if our parents didn't teach us firearms, then we didn't get to play with firearms. And so they must be bad. Um, so I'm, I'm all for, you know, guys getting out there and saying, here's a firearm, here's how to be safe with it. Here's how to shoot and have a good time. And that's fine if we stay in that realm. But when we get into tactical firearms instruction, um, a lot of people go online and get certified to become a tactical firearms instructor. Really? I didn't know you could even do that. It is, it is an online certification. Um, it's, uh, it's so giving that my cat got certified <laughs> my cat's name is bro and he is a certified instructor um unfortunately that's the standard that's what it takes to get insurance etc so when people ask me what i do what i do is more said by what i've done and uh that is i spent 10 years in the marine corps i served in iraq and afghanistan as an infantry rifleman at the end of seven years i became a combat instructor as a combat instructor i trained twenty-one thousand marines how to throw a hand grenade shoot machine guns to survive under gunfire I was very lucky in that career where I was elevated multiple times um, where I got to look at what we teach, how we teach, why we teach, and see what we can do to improve upon it. So I was very lucky to get out after 10 years to have those kind of experiences. About the time I got out, I got an email from a three-letter group that I had not heard of before to ask me to go back to Iraq to do more work overseas. So um, I took that job. My job was a PSS-FI. PSS is um, small AR-15 type work in up armored suburbans doing protective type things um, around embassies and other such compounds. And then FI is firearms instructor. So it's my job to teach, train, educate for qualifications and better shooting overall on whatever system was organic to that shooter. I opened my own logo emergency response tactical back in 2012, 2012. So we're coming up on just over nine years, and uh, under my own logo, I've taught all different types of entities, from first-time shooters to, you know, specialty teams. I've uh, been very lucky to have that as a, as a career path, and now that's all I do. 330 days a year, you'll find me getting my raccoon tan on the range and uh, <laughs> teaching people, families, individual teams how to be better at protecting themselves and their families. Fantastic, brother. So do you come from a military family, or was this something that was new to you and your family? That's a, that's a good question. Um, yes and no. My dad was in the military, but he was uh, more of the medical officer type of thing. And those type of guys usually don't carry guns too much. They don't want to hurt them to hurt themselves. Their value is not in the gun. It is in other tools. Um, so while my pops did serve a period of time, um, he's very non-military type, and he pushed me very hard not to join. Really? Very much so. Um, he, my dad was a doctor. His dad was a doctor, so on. And he pushed that very delicately on me and I was not interested. So I was happy to break that mold. So what was it about, um, you know, that slight pressure or that lack thereof that decided that, you know, ultimately allowed you to choose to go in to enlist? Well, I think I made the same uh, mistake that many other people of my era did and they wanted to be GI Joe and they tried that hat on. And uh, a lot of guys learned in four years, that's the wrong hat. It took me 10. A lot of guys, you know, that that was their passion. They did it for 20, 30 years and hats off to them. That's just, um, for me, I I learned very quickly that I was not in the right place for my headspace. Yeah, one of the things that's always interesting to me is, you know, you take uh, some young men, you, you know, you sort of pitch them the dream of adventure and traveling the world and shooting things and blowing up things. And the next thing you know, maybe it's not quite that way when you when you see the other side, right? What, what was your experience like when you first went in from what you're, you know, imagined it to be? You know, it's, it's, I'm glad you asked that. That opens a, a very wide window, garage door, if you will, to possibilities. And that is, um, how would I get you to be willing to fight and die for my cause? I got to sell you on some romantic stories. And um, how do I, of all the things that you could do for me, how do I get you to hold a rifle and kick in a door where you might die? Again, there's got to be some cool martyrs before you and some beliefs and some honor and all these sexy things. And in my experiences, 
nothing was that sexy. <laughs> um, all the helicopter and boat ops and kicking doors and all that stuff, it was never because it was fun and sexy and motivating. It was because I had to do it at that time. And, you know, I was 19 years old and I didn't want to die and I wanted to come home to my family. And we like saying, you know, we like saying that that was a choice I made and I'm proud of it. But sometimes when we really dig down, we start reliving those memories and they're not so pleasurable. And for some guys that, you know, really are all about that war game, maybe, maybe they do love it. Um, I did it because I had to do it once I had signed on the X. And um, I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't regret it because it gave me the life that I have today. And I'm grateful for the life, the experiences, and the, the understanding of the world that I now have. Um, I wish it could have been gained in a more peaceful way. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that's a, a wonderful way of framing that. And when you think about your understanding of the world today, you know, what do you think maybe helped shape that, you know, in all these experiences that you had over that decade in the service? Um, well, I think, I think what shapes you can be what breaks you or sometimes what makes you. Um, a lot of things you, you spend time diving deep into was painful memories and those painful memories can sometimes pro or con dictate who we are tomorrow. Um, and Unfortunately, we don't put the brain power into the day-to-day -day operations, and I think we should. Um, I think there are several traumatic things that, you know, I'm sure all of us have a story or two that we relive maybe even once a day, maybe more often, unfortunately. Uh, and as, as unfortunate as that is, we need to put it to scale to make it do what it needs to do for us. But the flip side of that coin is we should do that every day. Mm -hmm. We should look back on our day as we're settling in for bed and ask, how could I be a better man? What could I have done differently? Who might I have made felt less of a man by something I articulated incorrectly? And that, that daily remorse of how, how tomorrow I can sculpt myself differently. Uh, but more often than not, we just kind of focus on those large chapters and move on. Um, so again, I, I, think, I think a lot of what I, I did oversee is shaped more than it should have. And post all of that, I look at what I do every day as a firearms instructor and how I articulate what I articulated, what volume and inflection that resonates with people to make them perform better. Because at the end of the day, I feel that my job is to reorganize the headspace to make them successful in their emergency. Mm. I love that phrase, reorganize the headspace. And you said something else about um, putting it to scale. You know, so when I think about those two concepts, I think about, you know, human evolution. I think about, you know, replacing some bad programming or maybe working on some bad programming, replacing it with something, you know, effective and useful. You know, when you're working with people, what are some of the challenges that you have when it comes to rearranging someone's headspace? Because I think at the end of the day, anyone who's on a path of development has come up against that wall where it's like, okay, what do I do now? And everyone but you can see your hangups, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's, you know, I call that the mechanic game. Um, when, when the mechanic pops the hood of my car, he sees a couple <laughs> issues, right? And you hope. <laughs> right. Um, hopefully none. Um, but the reality is he'll, he'll see that, you know, the driver's side uh, front tire is a little low on air, but he doesn't care. It's the transmission he needs to work on where someone else less experienced would dive on that tire and forget about the transmission. So my job is to pop the hood and look at what tools need to be organized more than the next. And that, that low tire, once we get moving on the freeway, it's going to kind of inflate itself anyways. And that's a lot of marksmanship is don't be in a hurry to fix the details, focus on the large stuff. And the details tend to iron themselves out. And if they don't, after a third or fourth time, then it is time to get in there and reorganize that headspace. Um, but an interesting concept, you know, larger scale is... Um, I look at, I teach a women's pistol class. I teach it pretty regularly and that I had to adapt to my teaching style because in the military teaching, you know, these young Marines, they're all men. So we're all wired very differently and the, and the men to women wiring harnessing is very different. Uh, so coming to understand that so that I could give them what they needed. And a good example I like to give is, you know, we want to teach our wives, our girlfriends how to shoot. And to do so, we think, well, if I'm in the car and it's moving 80 miles an hour on the freeway, well, trade me seats. I got everything going for you. It's easy. Now, that girl doesn't want to go 80 miles an hour. <laughs> she, you've made her as uncomfortable as possible. And the example is obviously handing her a loaded gun. You made it easy. Point it, press the trigger. But instead, you hurled her onto the freeway in a position she doesn't want to be in. Right. She needs to sit in the parking lot and ask, what does this button do? What does this button do? And as tedious as that feels to you, that's how her brain is going to understand all the pieces she needs to understand so that she can start moving before mm -hmm. she even thinks about getting on the freeway. So 
in these women's pistol classes, I kind of learned to step back and they're in no hurry to shoot. They want to understand and ask a lot of questions. And usually in the first couple minutes, I say, we're not going to shoot for the first couple hours. And I can see the relief in their face because they assume I'm going to yell at them and grab a gun. Let's go. Um, so in that same classroom setting, there's questions I like to ask. And that's, if I raise my voice at you and tell you to stand up, will you do it more abruptly than if I ask you to stand up? And all of them will nod their head north to south. Um, and then I'll make an example of that. You know, I'll say, hey, come on over when you get a minute. And they'll start moseying. And I'll say, hurry up. <laughs> and they speed up and they get nervous and jittery. And that comes from a childhood, not brainwashing, but similar too. And that's if you see your child doing something you don't want them to do for their own safety, you're going to say stop. And you're going to say it more aggressively when they're holding a paper clip and putting it in an outlet. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we've programmed ourselves. And as adults, if I was to pull up a truck next to a young lady and I say, get in my car, I'll bet you she'll get in the car because she's afraid for her safety. Now we have to unprogram that. We have to say, no, I'm not going to get in your car because wherever you plan on taking me is not any safer than where I am now. And because I carry a firearm and I know how to use it, I'm comfortable and I know I'm making a safer choice by saying no. Mm -hmm. Because why would she say yes in the first place? Because she feels unsafe. Right. Uh, in the gym with the ladies, I see this a lot. So we'll do a lift, like a deadlift or something like that. And they will take the moment and they'll load the barbell and it's always way less than what they're capable of doing. And they'll pull it and they'll be like, oh, you know, I'm su I surprised myself. Meanwhile, they stood straight up like the barbell wasn't even loaded. And I'm like, well, okay, put some weight on the bar. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah, put some weight on the bar. You know, let's, let's challenge that a little bit. More weight stands right up, right? A lot of times when I'm training the women, I find that they tend to hold back or they tend to not recognize their own power in certain places. Do you see anything similar to that on the range when you're training ladies or no? Absolutely, I do. I think um, a very relative example of that is, you know, in pistol training, locking your slide to the rear. Mm. And doing so takes a little bit of strength. But I'll start this block of instruction by saying, don't say I can't, say I'm learning. And if you're having trouble, you certainly can. You just need to understand the technique of doing it. So say, I need help learning. Don't say I cannot because you're mentally defeating yourself and I know you can. And it comes back to the weight example I like to use specifically for this is I say, when you lift up heavy things, you put the collars on and then you lift. And they go, yeah, of course. So you don't lift something heavy and put collars on. They go, yeah, of course. So why would you pull the slide to the rear with maximum muscle and then try to get the slide catch up? You're using maximum muscle and then you're asking for fine-tuned muscle and that's hard. So instead, lift the slide catch up, keep lifting the slide catch up and then abruptly pull the slide to the rear as you would lift and suddenly the slide will lock to the rear and you'll have no issues. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I'll usually see one or two that might still struggle. So the next question I'll ask is who knows how to drive a manual? And usually half or more of those hands go up and I say, of those hands, who's stalled? And those hands better stay up or you're lying. Um, even an advanced driver will stall from time to time. And it's because of how our bodies are designed. So if you clench your right fist as hard as you can, harder, 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 you'll see you're curling on the left hand because we're symmetrical creatures. Mm -hmm. Bucket of cement in the right hand, mile down the road, both hands set down the bucket of cement and relax. And you look at your left hand and say, why are you tired? You didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the same thing with a clutch. I push the clutch in, I push the gas in, then I ease off with the clutch while pushing the gas in, doing opposites. My body doesn't like that, so I stall. Mm -hmm. And this is the same reason why we don't lock the slide through or we fail at locking the slide through. Instead of applying the collar and then doing the heavy lifting, We'll do the heavy lifting and then allow the slide to come forward in our hand. We're telling our hands off, which means your hand that's supposed to lock the slide to the rear will then say release. So mm -hmm. you'll release the slide catch and the slide at the same time and have failure. So this is where a technique I like to say on, on. Lift up, keep lifting up. Pull the slide to the rear only and release it and it will catch and then you won't have these issues. And it's just understanding our ergonomics. And one of the last things that I love to articulate, and I know I'm running away with this. No, keep going by all means. Is ergonomics. Um, we spend so much time with our bodies before we put a gun to our bodies or on our hip or on our hands. Mm -hmm. And when we pick up our TV remote, we swoop it up. We don't push down on the TV remote and then pick it up. But that's how you draw a pistol. You push down on the pistol, establish a proper grip, and then pull up. Everything, handgun or weapon related, is just like that. We have to understand that what our body wants to do because we've done it our whole life is not what we need to do now that we're holding a gun. Mm. Um, final example of the TV remote, same one. We'll, we'll stay with the lineage of the TV remote is whenever I pick up the TV remote, where does my thumb go? 
directly to the power button because that's the button I'm going to press. Economy of motion says go right to the power button. Now apply that to a firearm. I pick up the firearm. I place my finger on the trigger. So I'm not turning the TV off. I'm turning the lights off for good for someone. That's so right. Very important that we don't do that, not just for the safety aspect, but also because my finger along the frame of that weapon becomes my index point. So when I have an emergency, I point my finger at the bad guy, and I can begin pressing the trigger before ever seeing my sights. This gives me a huge leg up on the bad guy who's holding a firearm and aligning his sights to me. Because in the end, I'm just trying to beat him to putting lead inside of meat. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to be careful of the bang button for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, now that we both be- are going to become an enemy of the state by identifying that men and women are different. And I'm just curious now that we've sort of, you know, walked down this bit of a path, you know, what are some of the major differences that you have experienced when you're training women versus training men? What are some of the different responses you've seen to some of your techniques and, and patterns of training? Um, it's interesting. Yeah, there's, and I, I'm still testing, I'm still learning. And I, I love saying that to people is, you know, because I've been doing this for so many years, doesn't mean I have the system down perfect. It means I'm, I'm tugging at it. I'm seeing where I can improve upon it. I have that same remorse every night of how did I do a shooter and injustice? How could I have made them better? What could I have cut out of articulation or added to articulation that would have resonated with that individual? Mm-hmm. Um, so I by no means have it down to a perfect science, but I certainly have learned a lot of things along the way. Um, I like saying I'm, I'm not terribly knowledgeable, but I like questioning theories. So I've become knowledgeable because of it. Um, and it, what it's, what's interesting is when you talk about bullet placement, and I'm not talking about you know you intending to place the bullet where it places. I'm talking about you aiming at a target and where at the end of the day your 100 rounds landed on the target. And for most everyone, it is where they aimed or low left or ro- low right, depending upon left-handed, right-handed, and your level of recoil anticipation. So earning past those isn't just not anticipating recoil. That's a small piece of what's going to go wrong. Um, I could say, don't forget to brush your teeth, but that doesn't mean you're going to remember to brush your teeth and go toward the person you're supposed to be. Um, There's a lot more involved in that. But in the end, it has those results of what appears to be an anticipated recoil shot. However, with with women, even after explaining sight alignment and sight picture and having them understanding that level sights are important, Going back to a primal sense is uh, man eyes catch movement because we're hunters. It makes a lot of sense for us. Uh, We're built different. You know, all the things fit if you play caveman games. Um, Women being more often uh, more gatherers, it's their eyesight. They're identifying what they see on the deck or, you know, in in growing that can be what they bring back as, as their contribution. So I'll see women look over their sights and shoot and the round will impact very high on the target. And it will be the lack of use of the rear sight or the lack of use of sights at all. And that's one major segregation. The other segregation point, which I think is most entertaining, is I, a lot of instructors teach in the form of this is this, if X, then Y. And you know, it, that's a good thing to challenge. How I like to teach is what's called a, a guided discussion. So instead of me saying, hey, this is a hat, and you put it on your head like this, I say, what do you think that's for? And then people get to kind of give their opinions, their ideas, and then without telling them they're wrong, you formulate and guide that conversation in the direction that they arrive at. And now they've seen the hat from all different angles. They know what it's for and what it's not for, and they've debunked any theories they might have had. And now they intimately understand what a hat is used for. A lot of people don't teach that format because it requires a master level of knowledge. Because when somebody says, well, I could turn it inside out and put it on my head, you have to explain why you can't do that. (laughs) So the level of knowledge requirement is much more. Now, when teaching guys, you say, you know, hey, what is this? And one hand goes up and he says, it's a hat. Another hand goes up and he says, it's a ball cap. You say, yeah, you're both right. Now let's talk about this one specifically. The first class I taught to women, I said, what is this? And one girl says, oh, it's a cap. Another girl says, I got one of those on sale just the other day. And there goes, <laughs> oh my God, I saw that pink one, the same sale. And she says, yeah, I got that deal online too. No way. And you're thinking to yourself, per the military standards, I just lost the classroom. I'm not in control. I'm not guiding this conversation. Um, And so I I rushed them back like kittens back into the the corral. And uh, this repeated until I realized that that's the course that their brains need to go. Their dialogue isn't just between me. It's it's within that community as they're picking those strawberries. They're communicating amongst themselves. But they will come back, and then they will arrive at the destination you need to just in a different, more scattered perspective. And in the end, you still can cater that same conversation, still leave with the same master level of knowledge. You just have to leave more time 
for them to kind of run away with it and then come back. And to me, that was like mind blowing. Like, what do I, what do I do? I'm failing. I'm a bad instructor. (laughs) And in the end, it all works out. That's amazing. I love that, uh, that you brought up the vision piece on that. There's a woman named Alison Armstrong. Are you familiar with her by any chance? She's I'm horrible with stuff like that. I'm okay, sorry. Cool. All right. Yeah. So not to put you on the spot, but she studies, you know, men and women and has for decades. Right. And one of the things that I learned from her, uh, and that she learned from her research was that men have what's called track vision. As you were saying, men tracking, prey, hunting, you know, this whole evolutionary process, whereas women had scan vision, meaning they're gathering in the field, they've got a kid on the hip, they're watching for predators, they're, you know, plucking berries, they're doing all this stuff at the same time, you know, or at least attempting to while the guys are out, you know, trying to find one animal in a, you know, find, find that needle in the haystack and then kill it, right? And so um, when you're talking about that, my mind immediately went to that because it completely lines up with her research. And I was just curious if you had seen that in real life and because you did attach the terms um, even though you're not familiar with her work. So obviously, you know, the analogy lines up with the science on that. It's really interesting to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think the other direction to go with that is, you know, longevity. Women live longer and they live longer, I think, because they want to understand more than they want to do. Mm. And, you know, when you give uh, a young man keys to a car, he says, I know, give them to me. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and so he gets tickets and lives shorter. Yeah. Um, whereas the same analogy as before, the girl wants to sit in the parking lot and she wants to understand all the buttons before she's on the freeway. Mm-hmm. Um, not the I understand, look out, but the teach me, show me, tell me more. And while they're conflicting, they can become quite frustrated. And that's like a, a life thing that we probably see every day around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and another fun analogy I have speaking around the house is, is milk. You know, when you go in the fridge, you know, who has said, honey, where's the milk? And usually it's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And the trick is that, and I test you, I, I challenge you all to test this theory, is if you buy milk for your family, switch out the type of milk you buy and see if they see it. Because we look for the cap. The cap is blue because it stands out. The milk is white, the fridge is white. So I look for the caps, the most um, obvious item of them. Because I, my eyes look for, as you said, movement, if not movement, known shapes and colors. Right. So white on white's hard to see. And so when I see that blue, there's my milk. And when I don't see blue, it's red because the wife switched colors on me. Honey, where's the milk? Right in front of you. How did you not see that? And it's, <laughs> it's, it's fun because then later on you say, you know, I should clean the fridge out. And then you find Science Project, which used to be Chinese food. And it's, it's that message in the back of our head that our eyes saw it and our brain didn't process it. So as we move about our day later on, we say, you know, something's bugging me and I, I just think I need to clean out the fridge. And it's that brain reprocessing all the little details of your day that you just didn't realize. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, where you inject intuition. And intuition is, you know, we all have that at least one person that we're like, you know, I don't like that guy. I don't know why I don't like that guy. And then you break contact with him and you find out years later that he was you know, a murderer, or he was in all kinds of trouble, or he, you know, has a history of weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's that he stood in the doorway when you talked to him, and your body identified it, but your brain didn't process it. So this is where if intuition is speaking to you, it's, it's time to key up, you know, just like the old Chinese food in the fridge that your eyes didn't see and your nose didn't smell, your, your brain saw it. And if it's saying time to clean the fridge, then it's time to clean the fridge. If it's, <laughs> it's time to leave the area, it's time to leave the area and you don't need to understand why. Right. And I think a mistake we make is we often give ourselves credit. We often look back and said, you know, I always knew that guy was weird and it's no surprise that he was a murderer. Well, wait a minute. You didn't know he was weird. You just felt off. Don't give yourself too much credit because come tomorrow when you feel weird about somebody, you don't inherently know they're a murderer, therefore they must not be. It's okay to say, I don't know what what tickled me that time, but something similar is tickling me now. And I don't need to know what it is. I just need to remove myself from the situation. Yeah, it's there's definitely a greater intelligence that we can somehow tap into, call it, you know, intuition, whatever you want to call it. I'm curious now that you sort of opened that can of worms, if we go back into your history in the service, you know, and you're putting yourself obviously in dangerous situations on a regular basis. Did you have opportunity to sort of hone in on that intuition? Did you have moments where you felt like your senses were keener? Did you have any experience around, you know, not knowing, but knowing if that makes any sense? I think there's plenty of examples of, um, being overseas and in these high threat environments and saying, you know, well, I probably shouldn't be sitting here. And then you decide, you know, okay, I'm going to move. 
Um, and what's interesting is, is sometimes you're suffering so much overseas. Sometimes you, you haven't showered in three months. You haven't eaten in a day or two. You haven't uh, brushed your teeth in a week. And you're going on very minimal amounts of sleep. And um, death isn't so scary anymore. And, uh, but then you think about a folded American flag making its way home to the people you care about, and suddenly it, it becomes important again. Um, and that can motivate you to make choices and then later on look back and say, if I had not done that, the results might have been that folded American flag. And those are extreme examples, um, but I'd rather make it more relatable. And the more relatable is, you know, we've all been on the freeway going too fast. And then for some reason, you know, I'm going too fast. And then a police officer zips on past you. And it's, did you see him in your periphery? Did you see him in the rear view? And maybe you got that feeling? Or was there just an energy that somebody was on the prowl and you felt that energy of prowl and you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off a little bit. And then all things made sense, but only afterwards. And that's where I put so much um, investment into when something's tingling in you, listen to it. It should be the loudest thing you hear, even though it might be the softest voice. Yeah, for sure. Do you find yourself now that you've had some of these crazy experiences, you know, walking into a space and sort of surveying the situation everywhere you go, you know, are you on high alert at all times kind of a thing or, or no? I think, I think it's good and it's bad. And I think everybody who's had the experiences that a lot of our veterans have had um, are forever that way. Um, and, you know, again, it's good and it's bad. You know, the guys who won't sit facing the, the rear of the restaurant because they want to know who's coming and who's going. Uh, it's good to be aware of your surrounding, but within the realm of not stress the heck out all the time because that's, you know, I've got a theory um, in this it's kitty cats, right? And I got yeah. cats. I love my cats. Um, That's also, surprising. Right? Usually people tell me that. <laughs> uh, I, I did finally just get a dog, but um, I've been a cat person most of my life. And when a cat is an outdoor cat and it comes inside to, to sleep and to eat and then it goes back out on the prowl, that cat will live 10 to 12 years. The cat that stays in the house that curls up at your feet every night and, you know, eats cat food, that cat will live 18 to 20 years. And it's just the taxing stresses of that kitty being an outdoor kitty and understanding the threats and the possibilities, the risks and the awareness. You're elevating your heart rate and you're, you're stressing yourself. So you're overall shortening the expectations of your life. So I see it as the same thing. If, if you put yourself in those high-stress environments, you're not going to live that long. And there's plenty of examples of people, you know, their faces before and after a combat tour um, and the transitions. And it's, it's sad to see, you know, I look at some pictures of myself when I was 19 years old and I was, I was a child. You know, we look at these movies and they're 25-year-olds with, you know, cut chests and abs and stuff and they're, they're the ones serving our country. The reality is, we were all 140 to 160 pounds of 19-year-old kid carrying rifles that weighed, you know, eight pounds. That's a pretty heavy part of us. Add gear and everything else, and it's, uh, it's a young man's game, and that's, that's who it takes to go do those jobs. Um, but the sad reality is that a lot of those guys come home, and they've got demons to address, and they often don't get addressed. Uh, and, we, and we see those problems. And now, especially with current events, a lot of those guys are feeling like what they did didn't serve a purpose. And I hope they understand that there was a great purpose to what they did. And even if you, you know, bought time for a person or a people for that period of time to seek an education, to go to school, to not risk a roadside bomb for 10 years, 20 years, whatever time frame we allotted for them, uh, they might have gotten their slice of heaven. And they might be back to square one, maybe even worse. But they had their time to, to see what could have been. Sure. And if nothing else, that window is, is something to come come back to and something to understand that what veterans have done for the last 20 years in, in two different sandbox, sandboxes, one particular, obviously, um, isn't in vain. Yes. Yeah, I mean, obviously that story is sort of running the headlines right now, The you know, the big pullout from the Middle East. And I'm curious, you know, now that you have probably more perspective than most of the people I run into or talk to, you know, what is your perspective overall on what's taking place. Could it have been done differently and, and more effectively? You know, should we have pulled out sooner? What, what are your thoughts on that situation? I think that that is, um, and I've said this since I was 19 years old, um, I think that's a very controversial topic with no right answer. Mm -hmm. And since we're on controversy, let's go all out. Is, is abortion sure. right or wrong? And, you know, you could easily argue both sides of that. I don't stand on either side of that fence because it's, you know, you're, you're a martyr if you do. Right. Um, and I can only imagine the possibilities of situations people would be in to say it's right or it's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad it's not my job to decide. 
So the same thing applies to this war. When I was 19 and standing perimeter security with a, an Iraqi soldier, um, he asked if he could go to the bathroom, and I let him, and he came back in an hour. And that's the standard. You know, It's not my problem. I'll go do whatever I want to do, and I'll come back when I feel like it. And if I left you alone, you would leave, and you probably wouldn't come back. And that means when I leave this country, the kids that I don't have are probably going to have to come back and fight the same war that I fought. So I, I picked up a very disgruntled attitude towards what was going on. As a kid, I could figure out that this wasn't going to end anytime soon, and when it does end, it's not for long. So deciding, you know, if we pull out now, have we accomplished whatever U.S. mission it was that we had to uh, achieve, you know, it, it's fun to look back and say, well, what was the mission? I was there for a good chunk of my life. I don't think I could give you an honest answer. I, I don't know. I know what I was told. Uh, I know what's changed since. And in the end, I've come to terms with just, I don't know. I hope it was for the better. So was what you guys were told on the ground different from the headlines people are reading at home? Um, you know, I'm going to tell that story retrospectively because it will be honest, um, rather than what I was told and who told me and what was being said. Uh, hindsight could be much more factual. Um, and an operation that I took part in was called, uh, we thought it was called Operation Pegasus. Um, and it was, it was not a good operation. It was, uh, I believe we lasted 48 to 72 hours, if that. Uh, we had two to three casualties, uh, I'm sorry, platoons worth of casualties. Lots and lots of people were getting messed up. Uh, we were losing that struggle very, very quickly. Uh, we were pushing into an area that had not had Marines in it in a period of time. So it kind of been lost over. Um, and the purpose of that mission, I, you know, I had been told what it was. Don't know if it was true. Um, but on our final patrol of that mission, two, three days in, we got uh, word over comms that the juice isn't worth the squeeze. The colonel says that. And it's like, I've never heard a high-ranking military officer say something like that. You said this while you were engaged? Uh, well, we had just finished a gunfight, and they had said ju immediately after the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. And usually we push through and check bodies, et cetera, and we didn't because we were being told, don't, put, don't check, don't care, get back to the, the Ford operating base, where it was more of a patrol base, which is even smaller. We're loading up vehicles, and we're leaving. We're calling this a loss. And um, so we did. And, you know, thinking back many a times, that was 07, thinking back many a times in my life about what does the world think happened there? So one day I eventually looked it up, and um, it was called Operation Pegasus Bridge. And, of course, I didn't know that, being, you know, the regular riflemen on the front lines. Um, and the interview was to a, a particular person, a military-type officer, and he'll go on about the successes of the mission and how we denied enemy activity of this, we took this many weapons, we destroyed this many roadside bombs. And while all of those things are true, you're leaving out a lot of crucial information. So in the end, it looks like a big old victory. Yay us. And knowing, having been there, it was a very quick answer to say, whatever I'm being told is not accurate information. It's that whole American car and, and German car. And the German car was second to last, and the American car was second place. There's only two cars <laughs> in the race, man. <laughs> very biased. I hear you, brother. I hear you. I mean, I've always been curious about this sort of... Um, diametrically opposed view of what a military man or a military environment looks like. Because on the one hand, you know, nowadays you have, you know, sort of highbrow people like uh, a Jocko Willink, for example, who is, you know, coming out of the Navy SEALs talking about, you know, the intelligence and the sort of, you know, I guess you'd say the, the, the spirit of collaboration and communication that happens within these units and how it's for intelligent people and this, that, and the other thing. And on the other hand, you've got this viewpoint that these guys who sign up, they're just young, jarhead, locker room talking morons who will accept orders and do whatever, whatever. And I know the truth is neither of those things, but I'm curious, you know, what you saw and what your experience was when you look back, you know, what is the average military man's mentality looking like or, or what are they thinking in these situations? Um. In the situations of war or joining yeah, the military? Yeah, just, well, I mean, I think joining the military and then being exposed to live fire situations where your life is in peril is two very different things. So I'm, I'm curious about, you know, boots on the ground, you're seeing action, what is, you know, what's, what's going through your head? How are you thinking about it? So to understand that, let's understand the grooming process. Sure. Um, there's no movies about somebody who didn't make a difference in the military. 
every movie that's about a guy in the military is, is his story of joining and making a difference and changing the war and coming home. And we like painting that picture uh, right. in Hollywood and in, you know, different recipients of different awards. You know, it's, it's, it's the feeling we need to have to participate and maybe cost our lives and our family great, great sorrow. Um, so to paint that picture gets you in the door. Once you're in the door, you're owned for, you know, four plus years. Um, and when you're owned, a lot of people don't know this about joining the military is if you show up late, you're, you're not just in trouble. You're, you might spend 30 days in a prison cell. Mm. Late's not an option. The military wasn't designed around a commute to work. The military was designed around the barracks. And so if you're not in the barracks, it means you jump ship. You're, you're out of town and you're in trouble. Um, and if you don't come to work for 30 days, you're what's called a deserter. And you can be put before a rifle squad. <laughs> Literally. It doesn't Still happen. Still to this anymore. day, yeah. It's, it's written. It doesn't happen anymore. But that's the fear instilled in you to arrive at your job and do your duties. So a lot of the time, once you've signed on the X, it's no longer about what you want. It's about that you're here now and the system is going to squeeze you until they're done squeezing you and then they'll let you out. And that's, I remember hearing that, um, you know, as, as a young Marine, I was motivated to graduate boot camp and earn that, you know, EGA and be a part of the gun club. Um, and then going through combat training, you know, that was a great time of throwing grenades and shooting machine guns. It was a, a great time. Um, but I remember hearing at combat training, hearing people talk about, the best way to get through this is to do your four years. It's like, well, what else would people do? And then you find people would intentionally hurt themselves to try and get out of their, their contract or their combat deployment because they don't want to die or because they don't want to deal with, you know, the things that come with that, um, whether it's their chain of command, their peers, or God knows what. Um, and I, it, that took me back. And then getting to the fleet and then the experiences of being in the fleet is joining a gun club who just, you know, let's say the varsity team just won the championship. So the expectations of you are pretty high and they might not welcome you with open arms being that the expectations are so high. So suddenly it's not such a fun thing anymore and you don't have a choice as we discussed earlier. So now you've groomed this, you know, you joined, I own you, I got you trained up. Now I'm going to send you. And I think a lot of guys at that point kind of run a split between, you know, I just, I want to do what I need to do to get home. And then there's another side of that, which is there's a level of when you're at football camp, you want to score a touchdown, and that's it. That's it. You want to block the guy from stopping your guy. You want to score your touch. That's it. So getting somebody to slam their body into somebody else's body takes a, a locker room game, like you said. It takes a, a, a little bit of an egotistical push. So to get someone to hurt another human being it takes that egotistical push because that's not natural to us. We don't want to do stuff like that, but we're trained that in the movies, that's the success, that's victory. Uh, and in boot camp and all of your combat training, you know, that's the high fives and butt slaps of cutting down bad guys and shooting rockets at tanks. Mm -hmm. If you hit it, that's pretty cool. Now apply that to people being inside that tank. It's, it's a numbing game. So you'll find that guys get so numb that they're excited to have been in these experiences and maybe done some things, unfortunately. And then there are guys that immediately or beforehand know that that's not what they want to do. In the end, I think everybody comes back full circle and they end up saying, I'm not exactly happy about the things that I did. Um, and that's the, the interesting perspective of, you know, asking somebody, well, how many of them did you kill or what did it feel like to kill them? And I remember thinking that to myself, like, you know, after my first tour, I said, I, I, I can answer that question. I'm not worried about answering that. And then I got asked that question. I was overwhelmed. I, I didn't know what to say. Um, and it was because I didn't expect to relive some of those pains. I didn't expect to, to be back in that moment. Instead, I thought I had prepared myself to isolate my words into just words. Um, and that's, it's not so simple. And that's, you know, being empathetic to another human being, regardless of what uniform or religion or whatever they come from. Um, it's, it's, there's nothing cool about war except the idea that we paint in movies. Um, I've got a saying that um, my wife is well-versed in because she's heard me say it once or twice. She even helped me write a tattoo in Arabic um, about it, and that is war is beautiful to those who have never fought. Mm. I love that, man. I really, really love that. That makes me think. So as I'm listening to you speak, I'm thinking of, you know, when you enlisted, you said you were 19 years old, right? And mm. I know that's not an unusual story. I know a lot of younger people come out of school, go straight into the military. I mean, we had recruiters at my high school every day, you know, um, pulling seniors and juniors aside, talking to them all the time. And so I'm curious if, if now that you know what you know, and we know that 
as the decades have gone by, especially in North America and established countries, life has gotten easier and easier for most people, more and more comfortable. Kids are actually aging slower from a maturity standpoint. Is 19 old enough to make that decision with a malformed brain and the youthfulness of today's kids? That's a good question. Um, I think that's two-sided. I think... I think a lot of branches have a cap, you know, how, how old you're allowed to be when you join. And I don't remember what those caps are. I know that the Marine Corps is one of the youngest caps from what I recall. Um, and you ask why, why wouldn't you want more mature adults joining the military? They're no longer impressionable. At 27 years old, you know who you are and you won't be made into something. At 17 years old or 18 or 19 years old, you'll be made into the piece of whatever they need you to be to do the job they need you to do. So when you lose your character malleability, um, the branches will lose interest in you. So to, to ask the question of, you know, do you know enough to join the military? The question might be better stated, are you, are you malleable enough to still join the military? And I think every generation looks at the generation after it and calls them weak or whatever it is. Um, and in my time, there was you were not allowed to have junk drawers, and that means anybody can walk into your room if they outrank you and open the drawers, and if your quarters aren't stacked evenly, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's not healthy. That's, you know, um, shortly, two generations later, shortly after, uh, drawers were not allowed to be opened unless certain ranking people were there for an inspection that was prepared. Wall lockers weren't open. They were remained locked. You couldn't go through people's things, and that's how it ought to be. And you said, well, they're weak now. You know, I, I had organized drawers. I didn't, you know, leave my pennies unstacked. It's, but you need that. So you live there. You need to have that peace of mind. You need to lay your head down at night in a bed that you don't have to worry about getting inspected at 04 because that's not a healthy life. So while we might call that weaker, I see a lot of healthy aspects to that. Now, the flip side of that coin is there's a lot of other things that I think are going on in, in the world, in our society, um, that one might call soft, um, and I, I think pushing away from that would be healthy, but unfathomable. You know, how do you undo the things that we've done, uh, whether it be the direction of our society or how we treat each other? You know, we've gotten really good at pitting this person against this person, whether it's age or race or Democrat or whatever the heck it is. Um, we're so divided that it puts us in a very bad position for a lot of different reasons. Very true. Very true. You know, now that you've you know, obviously you've been around the world a little bit and seen different places, different cultures. You know, I feel like the the whole identity politics thing, which was, you know, kind of what you touched on just now, you know, I think the, the purpose of that is to divide people, right? Because at the end of the day, if you think through some of this stuff, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, who really gives a shit about your immutable characteristics? I sure as hell don't. I don't, I don't know who has the time to think about those things, to be quite honest with you, with everything going on in the world. And that's not to say that racism or sexism or pick your favorite ism doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But what I am saying is it's probably not impacting your life unless you're allowing it to. And so I'm curious, you know, um, when you were embedded with some of these uh, foreign Middle Eastern cultures, did you see any of that there? Or was it, oh, yeah. you know, more along the lines of homogeny? I mean, what, what, what sorts of, you know, obviously there's the religious aspect that we know of, but outside of that, like, was there, I don't like you because you're from XYZ town or within the military or, or just within the communities that you guys were working in and around. I mean, I know you guys work closely with some of the people on the ground there. So I, I had a conversation like this, very similar with, with a buddy of mine. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm a very good example of biased, unbiased. And that is, you know, I was raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and there's all different flavors of people there. Now we're in Arizona where there's all different flavors of people. Um, as, as youth Missouri and as outside of the military Arizona and in between there was the military and in the military, you know, one of the sayings, which, you know, I, I hate making military sayings, but that there is, you know, there isn't really a black or white. There's just different shades of green because we're all green. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of jokes about all the different things and nothing's untouchable. We could joke about anything because we were all brothers and we we're all just different shades of green. So it just died out there. It just wasn't a thing. And then to, you know, come back to the U.S. and hear people talking about, you know, the, the different issues of skin color and whatnot. And it's just things that I have seen, but I've also seen it die. And I don't see a reason it needs to be, you know, 
brought back into this suffering way that I think, as you said, is maybe more than, than reality. You know, I think by making it, not to say that it doesn't exist and it doesn't need to be dealt with, right. but I think that's more of a case by case. When we make it a uniform thing, that there's an us and a them, and we need to disbar the us and them, that you yourself are making the us and the them. I don't think the problem existed on the level they portrayed it to. And a lot of the people that are you know, spinning that story didn't really come from that society anyways. It's just fitting of an agenda. And that agenda might be, you know, whether it's votes or whether it's um, getting people to bicker at each other, you know, the vaccinated, not vaccinated, the mask, no mask, the different shades, the man versus women versus everything in between. You know, I don't think people care that much. I think it benefits someone to say that people care so much. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I mean, I think a lot of this is just simply the product of boredom. Because when you think about it, of boredom and safety. Because when you think about it, you know, I think one of the reasons, you know, those issues die in stressful situations is because you have bigger fish to fry, right? I mean, let's just think about it. Does it really matter if this guy looks like X, Y, Z? Or does it really matter if we all come out of this, you know, alive and well kind of a thing? I think I agree, but I also think that that's extreme. I think there are plenty of veteran generations who didn't fight a war who lost color. Mm-hmm. They just didn't care anymore because yeah. when you're, you're working so hard to be a part of a gun club, then you're happy to be a part of the gun club. You're not bugging this guy because he runs an AK and you run an AR. That's silly <laughs> stuff to argue about. Let's all just have fun and shoot together. You know? yeah, yeah. And so I think there's a bonding ties of you know World War II where people pulled together and the entire country fought that war. And, and the women went to car factories and made car parts that got attached to tanks. And the men went and fought. And, you know, that died off after World War II. That it now became the guys who want to fight, go fight. And everybody else does their thing at whatever coffee shop they want to do it at. And it doesn't affect them. We, we like to be not affected by what our country is doing. Right. So as we've lost this, you know, camaraderie as a country... It's much easier to divide us, and that typically is followed by a conquering of some sort. Yes, and you can see the division in the vote counts, right? Like if you look at, you know, left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, and you see an election won by a couple million votes out of a country of 30, 330 million or whatever it is, you know, you're, you're swinging one way or the other on the slimmest majority. So that's telling you right there that there's a tremendous amount of division, a tremendous amount of lines being drawn there. And, you know, the next step after that is, you know, what do you vote with next? Well, you can vote with your money, or you can vote with your feet, and probably voting with your money and your feet is more powerful than voting with your vote. I think you're right. I think, um, I think what made America, America is kind of a skeleton of what it was. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very, very scary for a lot of reasons. Um, I think government is a business and they're in business, and their business is booming, and they're not going to go out of business. And their product is problems. (laughs) And they're dealing them. (laughs) Yeah. 100%, brother. So we were talking off mic before we jumped on um, about standards, and this is something that comes up in, in my world a lot, you know, being one of these guys who's all about personal development, evolution, um, I know that you've gone through a lot of personal evolutions uh, in your life, military, um, you know, and even now as an entrepreneur, you know, there's always some problem that needs to be solved. There's always some challenge that needs to be faced. But one of the standards that you brought up was, you know, you're comparing like guys coming fresh out of boot camp versus guys who've, you know, kind of been in the shit for a little bit. And there's this sort of jaded mentality over how they should take care of themselves. Right. And obviously that comes into play there. But, you know, I think. I've seen it here at home, just like on a range with someone who's been to the range a hundred times and thinks they have all the answers and they're, they're not really aware of what they're doing. Their muzzle control is crazy. You know, they're, they're aiming at everything and everyone, you know, fingers on the trigger, you know, just all kinds of wrong actions, right? Whereas, whereas someone who's fresh out of a class is coming in and kind of like very highly aware of the situation and they're trying to do everything right. They don't relax you know, at at the wrong moment kind of a thing. I'm wondering if uh, you could speak to that parallel. Um, I'm sure you've seen it in some of your classes and obviously in your experiences and, you know, what it really means to you to have a good or a solid high standard. Absolutely. That's um, multi-headed. So let's, let's kind of approach it from the first aspect of, you know, the military mentality is when you go on a combat deployment and you spend eight or nine months, a lot of that time you're sleeping in ditches or in less than desirable circumstances, 
physical fitness training is not an option for you. Even eating right is not an option. Uh, as I mentioned, brushing your teeth and showering is often not an option. So coming back from that and earning your stripes, you've done your combat deployment, you've you know exchanged bullets with the bad guys, and now you're senior. Um, now you have a graduating class of you know combat trained guys who are fit, fresh out of boot camp, and they haven't spent the last nine months not PTing. So because they cannot PT you to combat that sense of feeling beat or outdone, it turns into the senior versus junior program. Same ranking guys, but you've done it or you haven't done it. Uh, perpetuating the whole you need to go fight for your country to be worth anything, which is a horrible attitude. Um, but that that I've done it, so I don't need to run as fast as you. I don't need to do as many pull-ups as you because I'm senior. And that's, that's a horrible attitude. In fact, there was a video I was vetting for a client, and it was a guy talking about his muscle discipline and the teams he's a part of. And it's okay that they're off safe entering rooms and their guns flag each other because they're on a different level. Meanwhile, don't do that. He's allowed to. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you ask, what are you telling the classroom when you say stuff like that? You're saying that because you're new and silly, you're not allowed to. But when you get to my level, which means when you're in your living room and nobody's watching you, you're going to play SWAT guy and maybe make some very serious mistakes. And um, the way I combat that in the classroom is I explain that you know, if you've punched paper with your gun, then you see your gun as a hole puncher. And that's what it does. And so if it points at somebody, it's not a big deal. It's just a hole puncher. But when you've seen what these things do to people, it's, it's pretty graphic. You know you don't want to do that to the person it might accidentally point at. So you become a master of the basics. And you treat your weapon as if it's going to do that carnage to the person that you don't want it to do. So you won't let that muzzle come near them. And an example is, at 1,000 yards, does the bad guy with a, a rifle know the difference between a seasoned shooter and a non-seasoned shooter? And I think the answer is yes. I think he sees a non-seasoned shooter flagging other people with his weapon, being lackadaisical with the safety, because he doesn't know what the gun can do. Um, he'll see the seasoned guy as making sure his muzzle flags no one. His, his trigger discipline is on point. He's handling his weapon in a very different manner. And that will get him shot first because he wants the seasoned guy out of the fight so that the new guys he can cut down. So directly by accidentally shooting a seasoned guy or indirectly by showing people you're unseasoned is going to be the cause of death for the more seasoned guy. So directly, indirectly, always handle your weapon as if you've seen what these things can do and you don't want to do that to the person standing next to you. There's never an excuse to say, well, it was unloaded or I'm on a level that I don't need to worry about those kind of things. That, that attitude with weapons handling is, is going to be the demise of you. And a great example is I've seen some really good shooters and I'll say, you know, you shoot with the best of them, but you would not be taken overseas with any of them because even though you shoot well, your muzzle's pointed at everybody all the time. And I'd rather have a safe, slow shooter than an unsafe, fast shooter. Right. Very obvious reasons. So reapplying that back to the physical fitness aspect is because you've done your time, you could sit back and do as the others do and say, I've earned mine. Now you need to earn yours. Or you could set that example. You can say, if I'm going to do this, if this is going to be who I am, then I'm going to join these guys on their run. And I'm going to push myself to meet and exceed. And this is where we go from being who we want to be, the seasoned veteran, and being who they need you to be, which is the seasoned veteran who can out-PT them. And it's not because you can right now. It's because your headspace tells you you can, and that alone will make you succeed. Mm, I love that. I love that distinction. So when you're you know, out on the range working with noobs or working with people who are at an intermediate or advanced level, you know, in terms of standards, what do you see, you know, and uh, are you seeing any form of uniformity across the board with a certain class of people or no? Um, no, I would say the uniformity comes from people going to the gun store, not knowing and leaving with tools for people who don't know. And very often, you know, I like the analogy of a, of a, if you want to become a mechanic, you don't go to the hardware store and buy tools. Right. You go to school and you learn how to turn a wrench. And then you buy the tools if they're not issued to. Um, our industry is backwards in that way, uh, in, in multiple ways. And one is that we feel we already have the knowledge and experience because we play Call of Duty. <laughs> or two, that if I just have the right tools, I'm good to go. And all of those things are obviously very dangerous. Yeah. Um, the, the extreme side of that, and a lot of us are guilty of it, admit it or not, is that we'll buy 15 guns before we learn how to use one of them. And, you know, while you've got these 15 in your front doors being breached and you're looking at your collection deciding which one do you know how to use, you're in a bad situation. Mm -hmm. 
So my advice has always been, you know, either rent from a local instructor, a vetted instructor, um, or purchase one and go train with it, go to a class, become proficient with it. And then once you're proficient with it, or you've trained 500 rounds with it, you can say at this point, I think a red dot optic is useful or a flashlight or a muzzle brake or whatever next accessory you want, because we all like to play Barbies and GI Joes and accessorize. And the truth is a lot of the accessories that make their way to class don't make their way out of class. Right, right. Yeah, so when you are, um, you know, running your sessions with people, um, aside from the hardware being an issue, you know, what, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you're seeing um, newbies come in or even, you know, even people who have a little bit of experience? What are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing them make like right out of the gate? Um, perpetuation of misnomers. So a great example, when I was in the military, I didn't understand uh, the belt fed machine gun. You know, the demonstration of an M249 open bolt belt fed machine gun. The instructor said open bolt machine guns are not reliable nor accurate. So PFC Orgel raised his hand and said, if they're not reliable or accurate, why don't we use closed bolts? And his answer was, because I said so. <laughs> it's the military. Right. So when I started getting into it and becoming an instructor, I, I asked questions like that. There are closed bolt machine guns used in foreign countries that are very effective. Um, the, HKM 20, uh, the HK-21, the HK-23, those are closed bolt belt-fed machine guns. And they're known for being very accurate and very reliable. Uh, the answer that he did not provide, because he did not know, was that if you had let a round sit inside the chamber of a very hot barreled belt fed machine gun, the round eventually will cook off. And when it cooks off, it will feed the next round and repeat, and you have what's called a runaway gun. That's very dangerous. So, you know, the German military, the HK industry, fluted their chambers to avoid that problem. That's why they have closed bolt belt feds, and we don't. So the answers are there. It's just we get told, we believe, and then we then regurgitate. So there's so much vomit in our industry of misnomers and total BS because we like being in the know and we like giving the information we've received, but we never get a chance to say, is this accurate? Can I test this? Can I prove this? And this is why I open conversations very, very easily with what theories do we have? And then let people give their theories. And then we can test those theories and I'll introduce mine as a theory, not as a fact. And then when you see that my technique outshines all the other techniques, there's no ego. It's just, let's see, let's try. And when 10 for 10 students say, this one is better, then I already know the answer to that. But I let you test it as a theory with no egos, attachments, anything. And your idea was just a theory too. I'm not saying the guy who taught you is, is wrong. I'm saying he had his theories and I know where those theories come from. And instead of perpetuate them, let's try, let's test, let's compare. And in the end, you have your answer. I think it's such a great teaching tool, right? Like you're not issuing edicts and commands. You're, you're saying, hey, let's try it. Let's see, you know, let's draw out the truth, if you will, you know, or what's most effective. So I, I, I really appreciate that. I know that uh, one of the things that we were also talking about off mic that I think is probably, mm, well, it, it doesn't come up a lot in circles of guns, but I know that it's there, and that is when we're talking about people who are new to the gun world and are looking for instruction, a lot of times, you know, uh, something might have triggered their interest in guns, you know, in their normal life. Maybe they had a bad experience of some way, shape, or form, and then now they're, they're wanting to take a little bit more control, um, you know, exercise a little bit more agency in their own lives. And I'm just curious if that's something that you see as an instructor. Absolutely it is. Um People come to me for all different reasons. Some of them, you know, see shooting as bowling. How many pins can I knock over? It can be a fun sport. Um, I like starting group classes when they're all new faces. I like starting with an aggressive question. Why do you own a gun? Do you want to hurt somebody? And the looks in their face, now they're defensive and they don't have answers. And I don't ask that to mess with them. I ask them to prepare them because one day you'll be in a coffee shop and you'll go to pick something out of your briefcase and somebody will see it and that will be how they word it. And what you say in the next two sentences might dictate whether you go to jail or not. Mm -hmm. So having a groomed response to that is, is very important. But not knowing where these different walks of life are coming from when they're searching for my help, it could be that they had a bad experience. It could be that they were attacked and they learned just how defenseless humans are when they don't have tools in their hands. Um, it could be an experience that was coming and never made it to, to reality, something that stopped before it became a real issue, but enough for them to identify the issue. Or a hobby, a call of duty, a, whatever it is, there's a million different reasons for people to get into it. Um, hopefully I answered that question. 
circle back to reality. Yeah, no, for sure. There's another aspect of the training piece that sort of bugs me, and I'm just wondering what your take is. A lot of times when I go to a firearms training class, you know, it doesn't matter who's putting it on. What I see is a lot of fat dudes, <laughs> you know, and, and they have every tool you know, under the, under the sun, 50,000 guns laying around the house, you know, ammo stacks. But you know what, if they had to run to the mailbox and back, they wouldn't be able to do it. But yet they're here holding guns, you know, when we're supposed to be going through these operations where, you know, maybe, we're, maybe it's, maybe it's duck and cover, you know, maybe it's, you know, point to point, whatever the thing is. And these guys can hardly move. You know, and so I, I get really outdone with seeing these people who don't take care of themselves think that they're going to be able to take care of themselves by picking up a deadly weapon. And I'm just curious what your take on that is. I think it matters what we're training for. I think for a lot of people, if they harness the tool, then they have the power and that's enough. And maybe that's true for their life and their reality. Um, you can use the same example in a lot of competitions. Um, I used to compete very regularly. And, and once I started observing a certain trend i lost interest in a lot of competitions and that was a lot of the guys who win are great at running 10 feet and the competition was designed for them or they designed it and now they're winning because they are running 10 feet right and my experiences in gun fighting is it's exhausting um it's it's up it's just getting up from the prone into a standing and then presenting your rifle then getting down into the prone again and up and down do that 10 times and if you're not winded you're, you're doing good because that's a, it's taxing it's a lot of muscles and you're jolting those muscles to life and then asking them to freeze and be steady for an accurate shot and that's stagnant we're not talking about moving from position to position we're not talking about talking over communications clearly and then engaging with your rifle and then using other tools that need to be deployed right now for the sake of other people's safety. Combat is a young man's game because it's very physically taxing. So if we're not fit to the level of able to handle our weight and move 20 yards and engage a target, move another 20 yards and engage a target, then what will we bring to the battlefield? And it's limited. But again, if you harness the weapon, you might yield the power and that could be in the back alley of drop the knife and you've done your job <laughs> you know it's just the the game in my opinion is train for what's realistic and if it's that backyard draw my gun and that's it if that's what's realistic to you then that's fine Absolutely. what might be realistic to the military law enforcement perspective is you might be chasing somebody and then it becomes a gunfight yes I, I have trouble imagining a situation where if you are you know just john q citizen and you're, you know, you, you draw your EDC and, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble imagining a scenario where your heart rate isn't through the roof, you know, or some part of you isn't anxious or fearful or on edge in some way, shape or form. And so, you know, when I go to, I've been to, I've actually been to some sessions where some of these dudes, you know, who have, you know, built quite the investment, you know, in their, in their belly area, you know, with lots of French fries and hamburgers and milkshakes and stuff. I've been to some of these uh, uh, classes where these guys have literally said, you know, I'm glad we didn't do the physical part today. Mm. You know, I'm so glad we didn't have to do X, Y, and Z. They just really wanted to stand there and shoot. And I mean, I get that. It's fun to stand there and shoot, right? But at the end of the day, if heart rate plays into it, if your anxiety level plays into it, if your ability to control, you know, um, you know minute muscles comes into play, I think you need to have some level of fitness to actually be able to perform in those moments. I think, I think that's fair. I think, um, you know, you can be a competitor who runs his 10 yards and that's that, and that's what you're training for. So you've made your success. Um, I think that if it gets worse than that, you're in trouble. And, you know, just like, you know, how fast can you draw your gun and place one round in the chest of a bad guy at three to seven yards? That might be your reality. That might be it. And how fast you do that might dictate your success. And if you spend your entire life mastering that, that's great. And you're sub one second every time and et cetera. And then there's two. And if you've only trained up to this point for this possible scenario, then all the other possibilities are now out the window. And not only are you saying to yourself, this isn't what I've trained for, you're asking yourself, how do I handle this? And we don't get to ask questions like that in a stressful gunfight. Um, a great example is when you're late for work, do you take a new route to work? 
No, you take the same route you've always taken because you're not even thinking clearly just being late to work. So when your life is on the line or your family's life might be on the line, you're not going to come up with a technique to handle two bad guys that you haven't rehearsed physically before. So if the realm of your reality is just this one guy, just these 10 feet and, you know, fitness doesn't matter, then fine. But when you step outside of that realm, there might be a bigger reality you have to suffer for and your family as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we come to the close, man, I always like to ask people a couple of questions. The first of which is uh, in and around this idea of fitness and wellness. And so I'm curious what wellness looks like or means to you in your life these days. Broad question. Very, very broad. Um, I think wellness for a million people is going to mean a million things. And, you know, I think having enough money to keep the family happy, which isn't much money, because the more time you spend with the family, the more they seem to appreciate that time, regardless of what you're snacking on for dinner. Um, So I think having people, a community that you're invested into, that return that same warmth, whether that be your your best friend, whether that be your significant other, whether that be your family, whether that be your church group or your shooting group, um, anywhere where you can invest energy that it's being mutually returned and you know, not only are you improving that group, but they're improving you as, as a byproduct of that. I think that's, that's humanity at its base. And that's a wonderful thing that we, I think, neglect a lot as a form of wealth. Mm, absolutely. I appreciate that answer. And as we come into the last question, I think it, if anyone's, um, you know, has any, had any questions about who you were, or what you can do for them going forward, I think those questions have probably been answered with your experience and uh, conversation here. So, that said, can you give us a little bit of information about how to get in touch with you, what your business is all about, and the type of person that you're looking to train? Absolutely. It's far and wide. Um, I've trained law enforcement groups. I'll train individuals. Um, more and more lately, I'm enjoying the individuals, the clean slates, the everything in between. But um, I do get the, I've been doing this for 40 years in this branch, and you know, it's, uh, it's fun to work with those um, so I, I like working with everybody um, to, to find access to me, my bio, my information, or class schedules if uh, we ever get back doing group classes again. Um, my website is ertactical.com. Um, you'll find all, all the information you would want to find about Rob, probably too much. And uh, <laughs> there's access to my email and phone and all that other stuff from there if you're interested in uh, proper firearms training in a very saturated market. Absolutely, brother. Well, you know, all the more reason to let the good guys shine, right? So hopefully we helped you do that today because I know that you bring a lot of value to the marketplace and I'm excited to work with you on some of these ideas we've talked about off mic. So last question is always the same, my friend, and that is what does success look like for you? I'm, I'm so lucky that I get to I say this all the time is um, of, of my peers and the people I've worked with and you know, I'm one of those lucky guys who get to every day, you know, 300 plus days a year, I get to teach people how to maintain safety for themselves and their family and teach people what's best for their family when it comes to a firearm. And that every day I go to quote unquote work <laughs> and my buddies, you know, what are you doing today? They say, I got to go to work. And you can tell they're upset. And they're like, oh, I forget that people do that. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm so lucky that my job is, is helping other people protect themselves and their families. Um, so to me, I, I'm, I'm living my own dream of success that I have time for my family. I have time to invest in the people around me. And along the way, I get to feed my family off of that, that success. So I'm very lucky to have my own business that is engineered towards other people and their, their safety as well as their families. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love the, the outward focused nature of that answer, man. It's uh, it's so rewarding when you can help people, you know, attain whatever it is they want to attain in this world. So thank you for that answer, man. I appreciate your time today. I know we've gone a little bit over the hour, but um, I think there's probably a thousand more topics that we could go down. I want to honor your time today and hopefully we can have you back on. We could talk a little bit more in depth about the uh, range, the types of guns, the types of people, and the things that we can learn and, and do with you in the future. So with that said, guys, on behalf of Rob and myself, we will see you in the next episode. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or 
hit me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.